chapter 5. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5. If you're new with us today, you picked a good day to come. There's free food downstairs after services. It's right down those stairs. We let the visitors eat first. Run fast, gentlemen. There's cinnamon rolls down there, and they probably won't last. Uh, but Romans chapter 5, we started to look at the topic of justification in the breakdown of this chapter last time. Uh, I'm not going to re-preach all of that, uh, so sorry if this is your first time with us, but I am going to give you those points again because the first part of this looked at the blessings of justification. And we looked at the blessings as being peace, whom we know can only come from the Lord Jesus. We read Philippians chapter 4 where Paul wrote in verses 6 through 9, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. And we talked about this in our announcements, that there won't be peace between men. There never has been. Uh, and we see this immediately in Genesis 4, do we not? That Cain and Abel immediately, they're brethren. They have the same mommy, the same daddy, and yet they don't get along. And the blood of Abel cries out unto the Lord for what had taken place. But that's not the peace that came through Christ. The peace that comes through Christ is the potential, the possibility for the elect, if they but believe, to have peace with God, who is our judge. He will have the final say over these things. And it's a peace which passeth all understanding, a peace that cannot be understood, cannot be explained, cannot be really accepted in the flesh. It's a peace of God through God. It shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Paul says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. So he speaks of virtuous things that comes from a peace that's beyond all understanding. But he says, if you find these things of virtue, think on these things, dwell on these things, do these things. The second blessing of justification that we talked about was place. We have a place in grace in which we can stand. A place on a foundation of Christ Jesus that cannot be shaken, cannot crumble, cannot be lost. The world's going to look at things differently. We saw the Grand Canyon this past week and the painted desert. We listened to the tour guides tell us how many millions of years old the earth is. It's just not true. The Bible gives us the truth. Man was exceedingly wicked and his creation was judged by flood waters. A flood that came upon the earth so suddenly, so quickly, from the very crust of the earth, water sprang forth. Oh, preacher, that's impossible. Well, there was no rain before. There was a vapor barrier that protected the earth. There was no rain before the flood. Man had never seen anything. They would have told you rain is impossible. Have you seen rain? Go tell the pre-Noic flood people you saw rain and they'd laugh you out of the room. They'd say you were nuts. But we know what happened. Earth, as man looks upon it, is his. And we make up stories to explain away this, that, and the other thing, but it's so easily understood if we understand that there was a flood. And we can believe there's a flood because it judged the wickedness of man. Have you ever seen the wickedness of man? All these things are true. 
the starting points of, of those elements of rain and the wickedness of men, those are true starting points, a true place to start the conversation. And if God is exceedingly good and perfectly righteous, He cannot dwell with any ounce of wickedness. It has to be judged. And this justification, what we're going to look at here today, is the judgment of our wickedness. That third promise was prospect. The third promise through justification was prospect. We talked about it coming from Romans 5, verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in a future that should not be possible for the believer because he's exceedingly wicked, but being born again through Christ Jesus is not only possible, it's guaranteed. It is sealed in the blood of Christ. The signet ring of God pressed into His blood, signing and signifying that we are indeed His and shall not be lost. It's only a promise that an eternal God can make. I can make you promises today. They'll die with me. But God lives. He ever liveth. He's the only one that can sustain such a promise. And He made it. Revelation 21.4 God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Have you ever seen and experienced death? Have you ever cried? These are elements that we know to be true and real. The Bible doesn't give these things to us in fairy tales, in unbelievable and unrelatable parables, but rather in things that we very much can understand. It talks about this prospect, this third blessing, this future, this hope. It talks about it thoroughly in Hebrews 11 when it speaks of those that desired a better country, one that was heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. We heard this morning in our Sunday school of the Holocaust Museum in Israel. There was no doubt in their minds this was not the kingdom of heaven. It was the judgment of God. But this was not their home. It's not our home either. The fourth promise was power. We see that in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also. And we talked about that being a power, a blessing of God. To to be able to glory in tribulation. What's the old man want to do in tribulation? What's the flesh want to do in tribulation? I don't deserve this. I shall rise up in triumph and vengeance over my enemies. That's not the God that we serve. He is the avenger. He is the one that reeks and balances the scales. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. We have been given the Holy Ghost. We have been given this third person. We have been granted this power that is set in motion by tribulation, teaching us patience, teaching us experience, and making us to be more acceptable in Christ Jesus. That even as they persecute us, we gain in power and understanding. As we mentioned, Psalm 22, verses 30 through 31, a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. And what do they declare? He hath done this. Beloved, we've been been given countless examples over just the last six months in which we can point and say, God hath done this thing. 
God is in our midst. God is working. The brother talked about this coming spring. Pay attention to what's coming this spring. This eclipse is not just another eclipse. I don't know what will happen, but I know that man is wicked and crazy enough to probably cause some things to happen if God doesn't come. We talked uh, recently, I think it was Brother, Brother Thorne had mentioned the cities that this passes over and the significance of the cities that it's going to, to cross. I think it was Brother Thorne. It might have been somebody else. but um, It's very important that we pay attention to these things. And we understand as Jesus was talking to sailors, he said, you know what a red sky means? And they say, sure we do. Storms are coming. There's moisture in the air. Beloved, we have red skies. A storm is coming. His name is Jesus Christ. He's coming and taking us home. He's removing us from this situation. Not because we don't deserve to go through it, but because it is by grace that we receive salvation. A free gift of God. The fifth blessing we mentioned is propitiation, which we'll see a little bit more today. But in verses 6 through 10, we see that without strength, as we were ungodly, as we were yet sinners, all through verses 6 through 10 of Romans 5, we see that Jesus yet saved us. There was not one ounce of redeemableness in us at all. There was nothing for which Jesus, who is outside of time as a God our Father, made this plan and declared it. He saw the beginning from the end, and he didn't look to the end and say, well, this one here is going to turn out to be something. God has saved them. He saw an assembly line belt of rotten apples with nothing good, nothing redeemable, none that considered the Lord Jesus Christ, none that considered God the Father. And he elected to love some. And we can sit here and say, that makes no sense. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve mercy. We deserve to tumble off the end of that belt as rotten apples. What good is salt that's lost its savor? What good is a rotten apple? Portion was the sixth blessing that we mentioned in the last blessing that we mentioned. And I believe probably the most emotional blessing that we mentioned. As we've been studying the Lord's ministry chronologically in our Sunday afternoon uh, sessions, we, we've seen a lot of the brethren asking for the right and the left hand, James and John. And Simon Peter saying, we've given up everything. And what will be on the other side for us? And we don't read that he asked this in a bitter tone over his sacrifices, but because he expected maybe something to be on the other side. And Jesus stands before them and says, I am your portion. I am He that is offered over as a lamb without blemish for you. I am your source of eternal life. In other words, He says, what more could I possibly offer you than that which is rightfully mine? And you are joint heirs with me. I am your portion. What good is the right and left hand? What good is wealth and freedom from taxation and freedom from the Romans and freedoms from the Greeks and freedom from the Egyptians? What good will these things be? I've given you something greater. Myself, willingly. Christ Jesus says, I am your portion. We see that in Romans 5 verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Those precious words right there. My Lord, Jesus Christ. 
He might be yours too. But I don't deserve him. And he's mine, the writer says. Paul says, he's mine. I'm the chief of sinners and he is mine. I have persecuted those of the way. Those that followed Jesus, I was their enemy. And he is my Lord and my Savior. He's my portion. Remember again in verses 6 through 10, we read that while we were without strength, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, he saved us. We look today at the basis of justification or the purpose and person of justification. And we'll start in Romans 5, uh, verse 12. And we'll, we'll go all the way to the end of the chapter eventually, but we're just going to read Romans uh, 5, verses 12 through 17 to start. Paul says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Now pay attention to this. You've heard the old Adam, the new Adam, and those types of things. This is where we get all of this. I'll do my best to make sure that we piece it together so that we understand it. There's no shame in coming to the Lord's house today and not having a full understanding of eschatology or of all of these things. This is the place where we are fed. At the feet of Jesus during His ministry, none were sent away because they didn't know enough. They gathered closer and closer. He taught them what it was to be a follower because that was where they would learn. Don't be ashamed to be here and not know these answers. Be fed this day. Romans 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And then we have a parenthetical here for the remainder of what we're going to read all the way through verse 17. And Paul is explaining, because the Romans needed the explanation too. For until the law, sin was in the world. See, the law didn't bring sin, but sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So even in a time in which there was no law between Adam and Moses, because Moses is the deliverer of the law from God, there was still sin. And where there was sin in the creation of God, there still had to be judgment. Even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgressions, who is the figure of him that was to come, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, and hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which received abundance of grace and of the gifts of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's, let's come down to basics for a minute. What was offered at the cross? We're not talking about the male factors here. What was actually offered at the cross? Christ Jesus, the foretold Messiah, and he was offered for what purpose? in place of or vicariously for the elect of God. These are indisputable facts. It's from Genesis all the way through that this was the purpose of Jesus Christ, to, father, to follow the will of God the Father, to drink of that cup which was to be the propitiation, the atonement, 
the justification for all those for which God sought to have justified. And he left, he left none undone, and he made no other way. It is through Christ Jesus that we know the Father, or we don't know him at all. The vicarious offering of the Lord Jesus Christ in the place of his elect, that they, that they be sinners, they that were enemies, they that were without strength, be saved by his grace, justified in the eyes of God, because blood was required for our atonement. And not just blood. Lambs were slaughtered for years by the Israelites. And it did not wash away their sins. It rolled it forward one year. And it didn't roll it forward one year until they killed another lamb. They did that, but every time it rolled it forward a year until this sacrifice, which was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah they had looked for, the, the Messiah they were to long for. And he ended the sacrifices as the perfect sacrifice. Amen. Righteous blood was required and we could never provide it. Right. Not one man in all of history could provide righteous blood as a sacrifice to undo what Adam did in the garden. And what Adam did caused the fall of everyone that followed. You may look different in this room than somebody else in this room, but Adam is our daddy. He was the first. There's no way around it. And as you look at the family tree out there, in case there was questions, it got reset with the flood. And we all came from Noah because it was a global flood, not a regional flood. We all have one daddy in Noah too. Now, he didn't have to fall again. He certainly has his moments, but he didn't have to fall again for all of creation to fall because Adam was created perfect and fell. And we all fell in him. In other words, Noah had been fallen enough that all that followed Noah was also still fallen because of Adam, where it originally happened. He was offered not to the Romans... He was not offered on the cross as a perfect sacrifice to the Jews who shouted, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Yeah, they had a hand in getting him there. But the will of God was not going to be undone. He was offered on that cross to our Holy Father. Absorb that for a moment. Surrounded by wicked men, just like the ark was as they scoffed that Noah was going to do what he was doing in building this ark. And they scoffed at his 120 years of preaching righteousness that God would judge his creation. As they scoffed and mocked Christ Jesus, crucify him, free the, free, free the rebel, free the violent man, but lock him up. Kill him, kill him, kill him. But he was sacrificed to God the Father. Jesus Christ is not a sacrifice that has to be offered to wicked man to redeem wicked man. He had to be offered to God the Father to redeem any of the wicked. He's not an open sacrifice for any who would or might consider His sacrifice. It was the will of the Father. Jesus was sent to do His will. That little baby we always want to picture with Joseph and Mary. He was slated to die for my sins. He was sent to die for my sins. It was never going to be any other way. The devil offered him a detour. He says, no, the cross must come before the crown. Jesus was already reigning. 
Jesus already had a crown. But in His earthly ministry, He had to take on that cross. He had to take on our burden. He had to take on our curse, which is exactly what the cross represented to that community. A curse. It was laid out in front of the gates and it was seen by everyone who passed by and everyone who entered in and everyone who exited the city. They were made to see the, the persecution of the cross, the death by the cross, every day of their lives. Here's something unique that we probably don't think about too often. That those who had seen that every day during their business, during trade, during their walk home or their walk or whatever they were doing, they would tell you if they were here now, something different happened the day Jesus went on that cross. The sky turned black. The earth shook. Mm -hmm. They would tell us it didn't happen that way every time somebody went on that cross. They would tell us something different happened with that man. History is doing a wonderful job of muting that. But we can look at Hebrew tradition and know they saw crosses every day. Every offering in time before Calvary pointed to this one moment. Rolling sins forward. And every observance of the Lord's Supper since has pointed back to that one moment at Calvary. Amen. It was this one moment when an equal offering was brought before God the Father to restore fellowship with His elect people. It will never happen again. And it never happened before. More importantly, it will never need to happen again. There will never be a new way to God the Father. And there will never be any who truly long to be in the kingdom of heaven that have no desire for Christ Jesus and get there. He's the door. Imagine the sheep gate. When we talked before about Jesus being the, the door and the, the shepherd and the great physician and all these things, think of him as the door just for a moment. you got a sheep pen uh, outside the city. That's, it's kind of shaped like a square, but there's one opening. So it goes like this. And the shepherd would be the door. We talked about this a little bit, but I want you to really envision it. The shepherd is the door. There's not some wicker door or steel door or garage door that closes the sheep off. They can see out. They could run out. But the shepherd's there. He is the door. And they answer to their own names. He knows their names. And as he calls them by name, they respond. And beloved, if you've never read Philip Keller, read it. They still do it. The shepherd still cries out, Ignatius, or whatever the name of the sheep is, and they come running. Are you of the fold of the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, He's the door. He protects both in and out. None get in by any other way. We described that sheep pen before as some of them have brambles on the top specifically designed to keep the wolves from trying to leap in. Not the sheep from leaping out. The sheep are known by name. The sheep are cared for and led by that door, the shepherd. They're not trying to jump ship. Look at verses 18 through 21 now, the, the conclusion of what we see in Romans 5. We ended the parenthetical there in verse 17, so now Paul's back on, on the main point here. He says, Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men, the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. The same word in which we get crisis. It's a big deal. Condemnation to me kind of sounds like this past thing, but when you say crisis, as a dad, as a man of a household, my, 
the hairs on my neck go up, my, my breath gets shorter. It's no longer fight or flight, it's fight. There's a crisis. I have to defend my household. I have to protect my wife, my children. When you tell me there's a crisis at foot, I think about where the gun is and where the bullets are. I think about the means of escape, the means of protection, and the means of shelter for my family. Beloved, we have a condemnation. We have a crisis discussed in John 3. For men love darkness rather than light. We have a very real crisis and condemnation. It's not Biden. It's not the White House. It's not our politicians. It's not the cost of food. It's not the taxes. It's not the gas prices. It's our sin. It has to be dealt with. It will be dealt with. In this life or the next. Was it dealt with vicariously through Jesus Christ, our justification on the cross? Then you will see the kingdom of heaven. Amen. And you will rest at ease tonight knowing that the crisis has been averted. Amen. That one went and suffered the shame and the humiliation and the torture and the pain. Oh yeah, they examined him too, but I'm talking about all of the things that we would whine about. Judas betrayed him. We would cry our eyes out if one that we cared so deeply for betrayed us. Those who don't know what you were talking about over the last few months is just a house. The months before that was betrayal. That kind of stuff hurts. But he also suffered physically for us. See, all of our worst dreams, our nightmares, the things that we really don't want to ever have to go through, he went through all of the things that we deserved and more as he was separated from the Father on top of that. See, he could bear the cup. And the idea of the cup, when he could go to the Father and say, your will, not mine. But Christ Jesus had never suffered separation from the Father. That's right. And he did that for us. It is finished. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Don't mistake the phrase free gift and think it was easy for what Jesus had to do for him to do it. But it is easy for us because he did it. It is a free gift to us, those whom believed, those whom yet believe. And the Lord Jesus Christ says their Savior. What he went through was not free. It was not easy. And we could say, well, he's God, and we would have no idea what that's like. But he was 100% God and 100% man. And our minds will never truly understand that union. You can come up with the phrases of hypostatic and all these things. We will never understand truly what that must have been like. Men smarter than me have argued, how could he have questions in the temple at 12? He's God, but he did have questions, and he answered questions. It, it's mind-boggling because he's God and man, and none have ever been and ever will be what he was. But he was made to perfectly experience what we deserved. Just like we talked about the body or the soul being made in heaven or hell to experience perfectly either suffering or contentment, Jesus Christ had to suffer perfectly every ounce that we deserved for us to be redeemed. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, 
So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. He obeyed 100%. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. The law entered with Moses to make sure men understood they were rebelling against God, that they were sinning. They were already doing it. But the law, as our schoolmaster, had to make sure we were educated to see it and to point us to Christ. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, and where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Think about how exceedingly wicked you really are. Think about the desires we don't talk about out loud. Before salvation, after salvation. Don't think about the others in your pew or in the room. Believe me, we're all wrestling with the same truth. Think about your most wickedness. Before the flood, God saw the earth and said, man's imaginations are only exceedingly evil, only continually evil, only continually wicked. And what's he say of the last days? As it was in Noah's days, it shall be again. During the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, look outside, we see the same thing. Exceeding wickedness. It isn't about love. It isn't about peace. It isn't about oneness or being whole. It's about pleasing the flesh. It is about the desires of the flesh. And every one of us in this room has flesh. We can't judge those Sodomites, the Gomorians. We can't judge them and say that they are more wicked than we. It is by the grace of God that we didn't end up there with them. It's by the grace of God that we don't yet end up there with them. We can look at the murderer, the molester, the greatest offenders in our imagination. Think of the the Unabomber and so on and so forth. The crazy guy who poisoned all the folks. I can't think of his name, but whoever you're thinking of. Maybe it's the 9-11 attackers. Maybe it's those who planned it, those who committed it, those who pulled it off. We are not so distant from their wickedness, beloved. We all have the capacity for the same evil. In other words, some did not fall more than others with Adam. You didn't get a heavier dose of Daddy's, Daddy Adam's genes than your brother, brethren. We all fell totally with Adam. Me as bad as every other sinner. Paul is explaining here how it is that all men are sinners and how it is that one man's death could give an ungodly sinner a right standing before God because grace more abounds. It's astounding. Can we even conceive of what grace truly is if it can continue to abound more than the wickedness that we all know so well that is in our hearts? We are identified with Adam as the head of the human race. And his sin is our sin. His death is our death. You're sitting here thinking, well, I don't identify with Adam. Well, Adam means man. We're doing a real good job in 2024 to try to disassociate ourselves with what a man and a woman is. You're not going to separate yourself from Adam. You're not going to separate yourself from what happened in the garden. You know it to be true. You desire to sin. You desire to rebel. 
Please note the repetition in verses 11 times total, but verse 12, verse 15, verse 19, we see the word one. And note also in verse 14, 17, and 21, we see the word reign. The key thought here is that when God looks upon the human race, he sees but two men. He sees Adam and he sees Christ Jesus. This is why we use terms like vicariously and imputation. Because all are in Adam unless they're in Jesus. There are no other options. Every human being is either in Adam and lost or in Christ and saved. And there is no middle ground. Verse 14 states that Adam is a type or a figure of Christ. He is the first Adam and Christ is the last Adam. Paul writes about this again in 1 Corinthians. And if you want to put a finger there, we're going to be in and out of 1 Corinthians 15 a little bit here. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Amen. Quickening means giving life, make alive. Uh, it, it's like a, an instantaneous electric reaction. Made alive. Born again. That's why we use phrases like that. Is The quickening spirit of Christ Jesus, the effectual working of the Holy Spirit on that general call that is the gospel or the good news that Christ Jesus came, suffered, died, and was buried and rose again. Amen. That being made real is what we refer to as a quickening. You remember the day that you were saved? It was like no day you'd ever had before. You were quickened. You were made alive. The first Adam was made from the earth. The last Adam, Christ, came from heaven. That same chapter, two verses later, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 47. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The first Adam was the king of the old creation. Listen to this, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Man was created with purpose. Man was created even with dominion or authority. And later it says that man was created to keep the garden. He didn't reign over it. He was in charge of keeping it, preserving it, protecting it by doing everything but one. Did not partake of that one tree. The last Adam is king or priest over the new creation. 2 Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Amen. I don't know if we fully understand what that means. And I wish I was smart enough to tell you, here's the answer so that you know. But we are called to put off the old man, so there's still a wrestle there. It's supposed to be passed away. It's supposed to be dead to us. So who's resurrecting it? Amen. When Jesus went through the temple and he turned the tables as they were profiting off of the money exchange and the purchase of the sacrificial animals, everything that they set up to be a religion they were profiting on in the temple. And he turned those tables. How many times did he turn the tables? At least twice. Who resurrected the table? Who set it back up? Who set everything back out? And who went right back to work? 
man. Who's resurrecting the old man? Why are we told to put off the old man? Because we keep bringing him back. That's right. The first Adam was tested in a perfect garden. He knew contentment, yet disobeyed God. While the last Adam was tested in a terrible wilderness, in a fallen creation, death all around him, and obeyed. Think of the first Adam. He didn't walk down the streets and see beggars, blind, paralytic. He'd never heard of leprosy. Never heard of taxation, for that matter. He was content. But the world Jesus came to, he saw that all around him. Not because those that are disabled or blind or uh, lepers had more sin than anyone else. He was surrounded by the true fallen nature of man. At every turn, even his teachings are being interrupted at the point of our study now. They're being interrupted by the wickedness of man. By the fallen nature Jesus was reminded every step of his ministry of what happened in the garden. And he saw it happen. That's right. Amen, brother. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus surrendered his will to God, not in a manner in which it was never already surrendered, but in a manner of the weight of that cup. It's your will, Father, I shall drink it. In disobedience of the first, uh, uh, the disobedience of the first Adam brought sin, condemnation, and death upon the human race. Just how big are those little sins? We live in a time now where everybody's got pet sins that we like to cater like a tamagotchi and just keep feeding it, keeping it on our phones, keeping it in our pockets, keeping it in our pocket books, keeping it on TVs, our computers, our houses, our mantles, and we just keep them alive. Just keep them going like some fish or some pathetic pet. How big are those little sins? This, the only sin available to Adam, cursed an entire race. The obedience of the last Adam brought righteousness, salvation. It brought life to all who will believe. Through the first Adam, death and sin reign in this world. We see this in verse 14, 17, and 21, that word reign. But through the last Adam, that last grace, or that last use of the word reign in verse 21, we see grace reigns and believers reign in life, according to verse 17. That power promise that we've already talked about, that portion promise as well, that we live or reign in life through Christ Jesus, through the new Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam. We can reign for we are no longer slave to the old man nature. We're no longer slave. We don't have to keep resurrection, resurrecting that old man. We can live new. We can live zealous. We can live peculiar. Why won't we? Why won't we pursue Christ Jesus as we should? Why won't we live as the Bible instructs? Why won't we follow him rather than being distant fans? We do know what he's asked of us. We do know what he requires. Why instead do we put the old man back on every morning and say, but I'm not going to do it? Our service is to the king of kings. It won't go unnoticed. The Old Testament ends with the word curse. 
there in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. And the New Testament is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1, 1. That's significant. A few Wednesdays ago, we talked about what that phrase means, and we see it again in Matthew 1, 1. And it ends with, and there shall be no more curse, in Revelation 22, 3. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. The remainder of Revelation 22 establishes that the paradise of Genesis that Adam lost is restored in Revelation through the cross of Christ, that wonderful tree of life God the Father spoke of all the way back in Genesis 3, verses 22, 23, and 24. Man does not die and go to hell because of the law. Men were dying before the law was ever revealed. God did not give the law to save mankind, but rather to reveal sin that man would consider his plight, his crisis, or his condemnation, and run to God, and then away was made. That truth, that life, was set forth before man. God's superabounding grace met the demands of the law when Christ died and and then supplied what the law could not supply. Salvation for sin. Freedom from that plague that has haunted man since the very beginning. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you understand that He is the only way for which you will ever see God the Father? This isn't just what Baptists believe. I've just now mentioned Baptists for the first time. This is what the Bible says. There's no way to the Father but through the Son. He tells Nicodemus over and over again in John 3, read it tonight. Ye must be born again. Ye must be quickened. Ye must be renewed. You can't get there the way you're getting there. Do you know Nicodemus? He was a pretty good religious person. One of the 70 best. He was a teacher. He understood religion. He understood working a penance. He understood requirements. He understood the law. And Jesus said, you have to be born again. You have to be quickened. You have to look at these things as I have required you to look at them. Ye have to have a new mind, a new heart, a new spirit. You love darkness rather than light. And I am the light. I've never thrown trash on my face in the middle of a sermon. That's a treat. That's a rare treat. I never usually put trash up here. It landed right back on the floor where I had picked it up at the beginning. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. You have to come through me. As a camel through the eye of the needle, a narrow point in which only the camel and the rider can fit, or the one walking in front or behind the camel, not all the extra baggage, not all the extra trinkets or the souvenirs, not all the things of this life you like so much, it's got to die. Your passion for it has to die. It has to be crucified on the cross. You have to follow me. Jesus said, I am the justification. I am the atonement. I am the portion. Without me, you cannot please the Father. Without me, you can do nothing. Will you be at peace tonight when the house is quiet and the facts of Romans 5 start to play over in your mind? You can run from this place. You can run from this preacher, these members, your fellow members, whoever you are. But when these truths start to play over again, when it's most quiet, will you be at peace? 
trusting that you've been justified in the Lord Jesus Christ? Mark chapter 1, verse 15 says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. You've heard the blessings of justification. Do you identify with the person that made it possible? Do you identify with God? Can we have an invitation?